Welcome to Talking Musicology. I'm Liam Cagney and I'm here as ever with Stephen Graham. Hello. We've been off the air recently because we've both been quite busy. Stephen has started a family. Uh, but just in case any of you were wondering, we're going to continue hopefully making the podcast more frequently over the coming months. In this episode, we're discussing a recent article by Nina Son Eidsheim entitled Maria Callas' Waistline and the Organology of Voice published in the summer-fall 2017 issue of the Opera Quarterly. First, just a few words about the author. Nina Sun Eidsheim is Professor of Musicology at UCLA. She's the author of Sensing Sound, Singing and Listening and Vibrational Practice, Measuring Race, The Micropolitics of Listening to Vocal Timbre and Vocality in African-American Popular Music. Both of those are published by Duke. Co-editor of the Oxford Handbook of Vocal Studies, forthcoming, and recipient of various fellowships. She studied vocal performance, composition and philosophy at the University of Agder in Norway and the Royal Academy of Music Aarhus in Denmark, before pursuing an MFA in music at the California Institute of the Arts and doing a PhD in critical studies, experimental practices at the University of California, San Diego. In Maria Callas's Waistline and the Organology of Voice, Eidsheim uses Maria Callas effectively as a case study to examine, quote, how we listen to female operatic voices today. Eidsheim's work in this way critically responds to a system of gendered discourse that has continuously and discreetly determined how female artists are publicly received and positioned. Eidsheim applies to Callas's voice what has been called critical organology. Eidsheim writes, quote, the shift to thinking about voice as only one of many functions of the organs involved may offer a framework within which to develop a vocabulary, concepts and perspectives can, that can help us to move laterally, engaging materiality in a different linguistic and conceptual register. Applied to voice and beyond, critical organology can indeed be considered a mode of thought." End of quote. As a mode of thought, critical organology is presented within the article as a basis of a deconstructive method of reading the discursive embeddedness of female bodies and gender identity. Eidsam explains, quote, I seek to contribute to a discourse that will separate voice and body from gender disparities, find a way to deal head on with voice as a material vibrational practice, and illuminate where and how vocal vocabulary and concepts are defined by millennia of gendered misconceptions, end of quote. In the article, which draws on Susan Bordo's work on gender in the body, Eidsheim first gives a brief overview of Callas's stellar career as a soprano. Callas's voice was by all standards exceptional, able to na navigate all 19th century bel canto passages with ease. Eidsheim then explores how two life events came to dominate the narrative paradigm about Callas's voice, Callas's weight loss and her passionate affair with Aristotle Onassis. Eidsheim argues that the narrative fashioned around Callas is one that frequently appears in relation to women, a lack of discipline, control and sacrifice. Callas was judged as forfeiting her voice in favour of other desires, painted as insatiable, the voice of the century was vilified for having sacrificed art, 
and her ability to realise composers' works for her own vanity and personal appetites, Eidsheim writes. In seeking to explode this narrative, Eidsheim, deploying organology, looks at the scientific basis for making a correlation between weight loss and change of voice. She gives a brief account of the biophysical mechanisms at work in vocal expression and concludes that in Callis's case, the results are inconclusive. We cannot say for sure whether Callis's weight loss was related to her voice becoming, as the discourse has it, shriller, weaker or less controlled. Eidsheim sticks to her hypothesis that Callis's voice and identity were by many allegorically fused in an unfair but historically typical way. So in opening the article up for discussion now, I wanted to ask you first, Stephen, what do you think of the potential for this musicological method of vocal organology? Vocal organology to me seems like, on one hand, a really interesting disciplinary innovation because it blends, in a broadly speaking, it blends science and the humanities in, a, in an intriguing way. It tries to bring a kind of a critical theory or um, cultural analysis to bear on a kind of a material biological set of data, if you like, or readings. And in that respect, it, it has potential, I think. Um, but, and I'm sure we'll get into the kind of weeds of the ways in which it might be interesting or not interesting in this article. But um, without speeding on quickly to the negative, I just wanted to say that underlying this kind of mashing together of two disciplines in this kind of broader discipline of um, interdiscipline let's say or, or kind of polydiscipline of, of vocal organology and um, some I had I, there was a kind of a niggle that, that ran through the article for me which is that in in this way of trying to blend science and the humanities in this voice studies or vocal organology it is an intriguing disciplinary proposition as I said but I, I fear that what will end up with is a kind of a, a situation in which one one side of the dyad always acts as handmaiden to the other. So um, the science, for example, might just kind of lumpenly and, and bluntly confirm the theory, or on the other hand, the theory might merely dress up or put put into kind of cultural language the science. So it might be that actually these two areas, these two approaches, might simply exist at diff different levels of explanation. I mean, I'm making a kind of a false dichotomy in one sense, I suppose, because the theory must all, always kind of respond in some way to physical, quote unquote, reality uh, to form its theories, for instance. And on the other hand, science must always have a kind of an inferential basis to it. So it must always be, must always exist in, in social reality. So it must always depend upon um, the kind of vicissitudes of, of societies and of human um, kind of bias. So it's not as if science exists in some objective realm and theory exists in some purely subjective realm. They they absolutely blend into each other and they absolutely rely on each other. But by the same token, they are two different areas of expertise which try and speak to different levels of knowledge or, or I suppose, um, if not knowledge, then description. One tries to describe reality in a neutral way, whereas the other tries to understand the meaning and value of that reality. So bringing them together in this way is, for me, to use a fashionable word, problematic. So it might be important to preserve the separation, actually, and uh, understand that they both do quite different things and might actually be, to some degree, in conflict with each other. And 
we can get into why that might be a specific problem in this article if you like but that's kind of my initial thoughts on vocal organology yeah it's a good point you make i think it's a difficulty that a lot of musicologists working on different topics will face uh, from a methodological point of view this sort of dichotomy which is inevitable between physical data or physical description of sound in our bodies and cultural concepts for example in gender theory or the application of gender theory um, to opera or even in, in musical analysis uh, the revision necessary of our long-standing musical concepts or often western-centric musical concepts uh, faced with the physical reality of sound or acoustics or psychoacoustics that type of thing i think she's trying to deal with it head-on in this article by proposing this interesting concept of vocal organology yeah obviously inevitably there, there are some challenges and difficulties that arise from that one of the things that interested me about this article which is sort of below the surface i think throughout it's never really explicitly addressed is a kind of issue of narrativity i mean it's a broader thing about celebrity in a kind of multi-mediated world or environment where often taste is based on identification with a you know a protagonist and in this case i felt that Alzheim was identifying with callus to some extent or that the interest to some extent in the topic arose through an identification with with the the protagonist here let's say so callus's real life becomes invested as Alzheim has shown with the characteristics of an opera it's almost as if she's living callus is this sort of living example of a of a tragic opera she ends up sad and alone in paris after having you know walked the boards across you know the most glorious venues in the world so her life is interpreted as an opera storyline with the inevitable final act and i don't know how are we to deal with this do you think i mean firstly do you agree that the this emotive identification is a one of the seeds for the study itself and if so does that muddy the waters of a kind of dispassionate scholarly approach to the topic well i'm completely fascinated that that you put it into that kind of framework because it hadn't i suppose it hadn't occurred to me because i took kind of took it as read that what was going on here were, were varying kind of competing identifications of callas or competing kind of um personifications of her in in the kind of critics so on the one hand uh time is just is responding to a kind of a negative uh project projection onto Callas or a kind of a negative narrative whereas whereby if Callas's life is an opera the conclusion is tragic whereas I suppose Itime is trying to provide a kind of a deconstruction of that narrative in some way and, and actually trying to in a, in a kind of a typically in a typically kind of subversive maneuver tries to um, overturn the kind of dominant narrative and actually reveal um, a more a kind of positive or um, liberated narrative where the female protagonist does not actually fall prey to the, the kind of dynamics that other people have lumped onto her and actually acts as a, in a kind of a, a more self-empowered in a more artistically mature and kind of uh, responsible frame Mm -hmm. So it's, I suppose it's two competing narratives in that way, and I and I think actually you're you're 
your identification of a kind of an operatic framework around this critical approach is a really intriguing one. And maybe on some level, there always needs to be some kind of an emotional identification with your kind of critical protagonists in some way. And it's it's completely opposite here, perhaps, because the subject is a person who obviously is well known for participating in the operatic repertoire. So, to, but anyway, to speak to your question about whether it gets in the way of a kind of a dispassionate analysis, I'm not sure that's a problem because analysis always needs to have some kind of a anchoring in an emotional point of view. And I don't, I, I'm not sure if the emotional investment on Eidsheim's part here gets in the way to the point where her kind of account is clouded. I mean, her account is already biased, isn't it? It's already coming from a very particular desire to provide a feminist, a critical feminist corrective to dominant narratives of kind of gendered um, notions of appetite and of kind of letting go and, and so on. So, so yeah, I guess it's a complicated, it's a complicated situation where there is an investment on the part of our time in the in the narrative, but to me the investment isn't necessarily a problematic one. Mm -hmm. What do you think? I would agree with that. I think you you're right to point out that we are all inevitably at, at the outset biased in a certain way. You can't say that we you're complete ever going to be completely objective. That would be quite a I don't know that would be quite a dodgy dodgy thing to kind of swathe yourself in to say that your viewpoint is completely disinterested. None of our, our viewpoints are ever completely disinterested and being open about that is probably the best way of, of approaching things. And yeah, I think you're right. Unless we initially as musicologists or as scholars or as curious people have an emotional attachment to a topic, I mean, why why would we why would we even get involved in the first place? I think that's always going to be the start of intellectual curiosity and why we proceed with certain topics. And it can be a good motor for pushing us through um, a successful inquiry of it. Yeah, I suppose the key point is just not to then let it inform your arguments to the point where the arguments just acts as kind of PR for, for the people involved or acts as a kind of a cheerleading. You know, I suppose you need to be willing to subject your own biases to critical scrutiny if that's possible. Right. No, um, I, I never had yeah. the sense that I'd sign, for example, was, as you say, cheerleading uh, for for callous in this in this analysis, in this cultural analysis or vocal vocal organological analysis. Or, or actually, if to me at least, if she was cheerleading, it was because the point that she was making was such a an uncontroversial and kind of obvious one that. It didn't. It didn't matter so much. Right. Um, I mean, can I actually ask you a question? Because this is this is my second. And, and just to say, um, broadly speaking, I actually I really enjoyed this article, and it, it, it whilst it covered fairly familiar ground, and I don't think made a, as I said an uncontroversial point about Callas. It nevertheless it made for an intriguing disciplinary blend, and uh, it really gets into the the thickets of uh, discussions around. The way in which, as you said, the discursive embeddedness of bodies uh, might might actually open itself out to a kind of different kinds of analyses. So on that level, it, it worked quite well for me. But I've, I've already spoken about my first kind of possible bone of contention, which was the the kind of blend of science and humanities, which which is kind of driving the the method here. The second one kind of relates to that to some degree, which is that well, her whole argument that 
Carlos's waistline did not necessarily affect her vocal prowess. Or, or rather, her kind of desire to analyze whether her waistline affected her vocal prowess or not. To me, it's a kind of a red herring because what it does is accepts the premise that her weight or her personal morality and appetite, because that's she shows in a really interesting way through Bordeaux, doesn't she? That it's not just her kind of weight, the gender, not the gender kind of dynamics around weight and the body, but also how they quickly bleed into a kind of a feminized morality where supposedly the loss of control and the kind of a an overweening appetite is a kind of a, a synonym to, to, to being a woman and and then from that that's used to kind of browbeat them into kind of into kind of submission somehow um so so that that's the kind of i understand that that was a cultural kind of dynamic that happened around Carlos's reception and the way she was written about that that's straightforward but to me it's such a ridiculous cultural narrative and such a such a such a farcical one that's so clearly um anchored in false or or wrong notions about gendered bodies that in accepting the, the the possibility that that premise might be right and have some kind of concrete basis she just ends up giving it more kind of heed than it might have had otherwise so it reminded me, and I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you the question in a moment, but just just briefly to finish up, it reminded me in a way that that argument that often gets made around education being useful or not, and a lot of people's response to that kind of point is, it is useful, and I'm going to demonstrate why it's useful. But but actually, as a lot of people point out, what what maybe is the is the more convincing or persuasive or responsible respo kind of reaction is not to say it is useful and I'm going to demonstrate that, but to say that education doesn't need to be useful. Its usefulness is its own kind of its own kind of value as a its utility as a kind of a means to an end, as something which can get you a job, is kind of besides the point. Its value is what it kind of contributes to your own kind of sense of, of life and of the world around you and so on. So just to come back to this article I felt like her taking that argument on its own terms was accepting the premise of something that was clearly false. All she needed to do was to say this point of view is based on a falsehood and a kind of a set of um, biases around gender which are clearly false and culturally specific. And if nothing else demonstrates this, it's the fact that there are all sorts of different reviews of Callas which show that even when she had lost weight, some people thought her voice was still really powerful and even more powerful, and other people didn't. That's all she needed to do. She didn't really need to go into such scientific detail about um, the, the materiality of vocal organs and so on. What did you make of this kind of central point? Well, I totally get what you're saying, and I agree that, uh, yeah, by accepting the premises of the the thing, the, the argument with which she's taking issue with, she's required to, at maybe too much length, run through its argument. But at the same time, as an example of some kind of pre preliminary method she's trying to establish called vocal organology, I thought that, yeah, it certainly was necessary to go into the biophysical elements of vocal production, the physiology of the voice, how we hear it and that type of thing, and talking about the different register, vocal registers and all of that. I felt that actually, I, I had been waiting for that to come, and the article comes in the last 
or maybe the third quarter of the last third, I had anticipated maybe going into that natural sciences type stuff uh, earlier in the article. And I, I felt yeah. that in order for the article to be robust analytically, I, I did think that that was necessary, that type of um, multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary perspective. At the same time, though, it's it's rather undercut by the fact that uh, I, I time concludes that we cannot say for sure whether or to what degree Callus's changing voice was related to you know elements of a changing body. It's it's not really I don't know it it doesn't really feel justified in terms of what the conclusion is. The fact that there isn't really any conclusion. I mean, on that, but on that level, I felt like that made sense because she shows that you can't definitively say that her weight loss affected her ability to, to sing in a negative or positive way. So therefore, viewpoints which say that it did have no ground, kind of leg to stand on. Mm -hmm. well, I felt, Do you know what I mean? I felt so, like it would have been interesting, perhaps even to have made a comparison with a male singer who has, I don't know, if if one could be found about whom corresponding things had been said, gendered in a, in, a, in a more masculine way, traditionally masculine way. Yeah, that might have made for a really interesting analytical kind of uh, comparison, wouldn't it? Try and explode the kind of a lot of the gendered um, biased kind of concepts within which Callus is circulated within within the discourse. I mean, she she obviously when she gets into the the what you said the natural sciences part, which which is very detailed and seems to me to be to be fairly robust and and kind of clearly realised. So on that level, it kind of it works to me. Um, I I don't think she needed that much detail. I don't know if it actually adds anything to the article other than I agree with you that it, it does actually shore up her kind of disciplinary case, if you like, where she's trying to kind of demonstrate the power of this what she calls critical organology of the voice or voice studies and this kind of transdiscipline of science and the humanities it, it, on that level it, it does show how that method might work but I, I just feel like the results we get don't actually um, don't actually match up with the kind of grand claims or not even grand claims but the, the potential that I can see in, in that kind of discipline so I'm not quite sure it all kind of works but by the same token when she gets into those details she does make some very valid points about, for example, that you might accept, you might expect the size of the body to mean a larger vocal tract, which it does often mean, which then often means a lower voice. But then she's, as she says, there's many, many exceptions to that. For example, um, a small man and, and, and a woman of the same size often have a very different voice. So therefore, that kind of detail doesn't really, or that kind of uh, claim doesn't really hold water. And then she gets into the whole stuff about particular vocal features like vocal support and the relation of vocal support with registers and breaks and how Callas couldn't was criticized later on for not being able to hide the breaks in her voice but again Eidsheim shows that you just can't demonstrate this kind of scientifically that it comes from her weight loss and um, again there's lots of exceptions to the rule where people hadn't lost weight and they still couldn't hide the breaks and even before she lost weight she, she wasn't as good at hiding the breaks in her voice so so in the end I think we get too much detail. We get, we get to me at least, we get just too much kind of layering up of this kind of quasi-scientific or, or kind of quasi-material 
um, analysis. And I just don't think it adds that much to the, the article, even though, as we said, in terms of disciplinary um, kind of credentials, it, it does make sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just think we're, we have a, a kind of a irresolvable kind of knot here between two types of approaches. And that was my kind of overriding feeling. Right. I, I Like I've already said, I did feel that um, the kind of material data served a purpose within the article and I agree with you that it's an impressive article and I enjoyed reading it a lot. I would have liked a little bit of attention to just narrative theory, narrativity, um, such as, for example, you find in some of Eric Drott's articles where he's talking about how characters are constructed in, in terms of discourse and discursive formation within um, within music reception. He talks about it in relation to musicology and um, there might have been a little bit of analysis of that in regard to Callis as she is sort of idealized or she was idealized and vilified by the same token uh, within the reception of, of her work. Yeah, there's a lot more to say here on that in that kind of level. And also, I, I did like your idea of in bringing in a male singer here just to kind of throw things into relief in terms of gendered reception and so on. Do you think her, her kind of method of joining critical inquiry and kind of material analysis. Do you think that could, so I think we're both saying that actually, we think it has potential, but possibly in this article, it didn't quite add up. Would that be fair? Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. It seemed like it more fed into this perspective or programmatic picture of vocal organology as a proposed strand of inquiry uh, in regard to opera and in regard to vocal music more generally uh, mm-hmm. I think it made sense to to include it here in an exploratory way we've often talked in this podcast about articles as kind of essayistic in some some respects where often the scholar will try out different things and some of them will work some of them will not but it's useful to experiment with different uh, different methodological approaches for me Absolutely. kind of facing the cultural concepts with the physical data is really worthwhile and I think if we're looking at a deconstructive method for a lot of these gendered concepts that that is certainly for me that would be the way to go I think it comes down to something like the relationship between the voice and the body or between the body and the self so it goes into philosophical territory she talks about how the voice is innately interdisciplinary for me, when she said that at the outset of the article, it suggested the, some of these philosophical questions about the unity of the self and the unity of the voice, or whether there's sort of an internal division at the very start. No, I think, I think yeah, you've honed in on something really interesting there, which is that she points out at one point that she wants to kind of correct this usual narrative about callous, and in doing so, she, she points out about how the voice in particular, so I separate from, um, you know, a guitar or a violin or another kind of instrument. The voice in particular is this weird blend of uh, biological, social, cultural, and, and many other layers. And we can't really make a kind of a clear judgment without evidence from these different kind of territories. Um, and so so on that level, it kind of, it does make sense to me that she would bring in all these different reference points. But I think possibly what you were getting at there was that she invoked biology, sociology, cultural analysis, and, and philosophy, actually, without actually going to that level of kind of uh, 
conceptual kind of analysis where she thinks about, like you said, the self um, and the construction of the self in society and so on. She, she sticks a little bit more to general kind of feminist correctives or, or critiques of gender reception of the voice and then goes to the kind of biological stuff and, and maybe leaves out um, a whole area around the voice which might have been really valuable here. Right. Uh, one of the other things I observed, I'm not sure you would agree with it, is that although there, like, there's this distinction that was presented throughout between discourse, cultural discourse on the one hand and the body on the other, which um, is a way of saying that the body has always been overwritten with cultural narratives and codes and it hasn't been allowed to be itself. But by saying that, we're also saying that the body somehow stands outside of all discourse which is actually weirdly not a way of materializing the body but of idealizing it we say that it stands outside of any discourse in a way or maybe the distinction between the ideal and the real here is what kind of breaks down that the body kind of itself deconstructs these oppositions i guess there, i mean you could go down a rabbit hole with this type of stuff but for what is proposed vocal organology i think that that's an element that needs to be incorporated too. Oh, absolutely. I mean, science is a discourse, you know? Right. Um, like you were pointing out so, at the start, I, I didn't comment on that, but I, I, I totally agree with what you were saying about the in, inextricable way in which concepts and physical analysis intersect. Yeah, and there's some there's a weird dynamic which, which kind of underlies or kind of emerges out of this article, which is that even though she's trying to combine and blend science with cultural analysis what what sort of ends up happening is that she reinforces the the kind of um social dichotomy that exists between them whereby she has this cultural analysis then she has this material analysis and it almost feels like never the twain should meet it feels like they both operate for her in two separate spheres i don't know if that's fair actually on the article but just talking about it now it's occurring to me that actually what she does is she reinforces the fact that on one level we have the body on the other level we have the discourse and as you've just been saying that's not that's not really true because the two are folded into each other because the body is a discourse as much as discourse is made up of bodies and so on you know so i'm not again actually i think it comes back to what, where we started which is I, for me, I'm just not sure about the blend of science and the humanities for all these complicated reasons that we're kind of we're kind of slowly um, picking out of her kind of interesting analysis. I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure it works as a discipline. I don't know. Can you imagine? Like, can you imagine another? This is a hard thing to ask because I suppose I'm asking you to come up with the whole idea for a new article. But can you imagine another scenario or kind of case study or? area where this kind of approach might work so critical organology of the voice or of, of something else well, can you imagine another situation where it would work well i can but not in isolation i mean i've been thinking about these things recently in, in relation to interdisciplinarity and different ways in which scholars in different disciplines and, and fields of inquiry work so for musicologists you know, single author monographs are, are what we do, but in the natural sciences, it's always working in teams and papers are, are joint authors. There might be a lead author, but there's always a team behind it. For me, I can imagine, sure, I can imagine further applications of vocal organology, but the ideal 
would be, let's say, a team of five or six people granted some funding to work on a kind of multi-perspectival analysis of some particular topic or range of topics within that conceptual area. And then you could use scholars who have different specialities towards a holistic end result, which then might start to show us how some of these divisions can be bridged. I can't, yeah, so I can, I can imagine further applications, but I think the discipline itself ideally would, would be able to accommodate them by evolving and, and changing its working process. Mm-hmm. I, I, in general, I think interdisciplinarity, I mean, it's such a buzzword now and it is being brought in in different ways. And we see that in, in some high profile research projects in the UK and musicology. But I think it would be great if we could start to find more practical ways of doing it and of persuading universities or funding bodies to to give it money. I think there's a lot of interest on all sides from interdisciplinarity, but people don't really know how to do it. So there needs to be a bit more experimentation. In this case, for example, why not, you know, fund an experimental approach to studying the topic of vocal, vocal organology? We wouldn't know what would come out of it, but we would learn about its potential through just doing it. Mm-hmm. I'm completely intrigued by by all that. I think I would be very open if it were down to me. I'd be very open to that kind of experimentation, particularly if it had an experimental bent where there was a, a genuine kind of spirit of inquiry and, and kind of discovery where there was an attempt to kind of cultivate this new approach. I have to say, I'm, I'm still very skeptical for the reasons I kind of outlined earlier, where by let's say you have a team of people working I'm just not sure that the science would add all that much to the theory or or if it I'm just not sure how they would speak to speak to each other and reconcile with each other because it, they, they seem to be two different areas of expertise to me that operating in different spheres and on different levels of explanation like I said earlier so I just I don't know I, I wouldn't want to be beholden to a, a bunch of scientists when I'm thinking up my grand theories about things yeah would you? No, it's, it's a good point. I mean, how how do you, how, how does one broach that? Would it not simply hold one back in, in pursuing properly musicological research to have to, I don't know, feel obliged to, to bring in a lot of physiological stuff, which which mightn't be all that valid? No, it's 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 a difficult area. It is. I am I am genuinely intrigued though because I feel like I feel like I'm actually very biased against this sort of thing because. Whilst everyone talks about interdisciplinarity, I, you know, to be a little bit old-fashioned, I suppose, um, I think I, I, I would rather kind of genuine specialisms and people working in a deep, deep kind of developed way on their own areas of interest. I feel though that like interdisciplinarity and specialisation aren't to be opposed. I mean, specialisation is the main difficulty to interdisciplinarity. Obviously, all all of the disciplines over the past hundred years have gotten more and more specialized which makes it more and more difficult for scholars to to you know work with each other across disciplinary boundaries but there has to be a way of utilizing that there has to be a way i don't know i th- i think in in interdisciplinary research i've been thinking about it a lot recently and, and talking to people about it in interdisciplinary research the informal element as a lead up to the research proper is really important so that let's say there are five yeah. scholars to continue with that example from earlier they actually spend a lot of time together informally 
which you know being scholars will naturally lead into them talking about their work coming to know each other a bit better in that way and then after a certain amount of time proceeding to some scholarship proper again that might sound so kind of airy airy fairy to some and a bad way of using resources but if we think even within our discipline what led us into becoming specialists I mean the the informal element is always huge and it continues to be day to day you go out to gigs or you're in somebody's house or flat and you hear a piece of music and chat about it and then you know this sows seeds to lead towards some research project or other I think it's the same with collaborations in the informal element is really important and I think that that is what is hard for big institutions to invest in or, or have faith in or understand uh, in this regard I don't know who's to say who's to say such yeah. an experiment wouldn't be worthwhile I mean that to me that that comes that seems much more um, potentially kind of rich and valuable than the kind of situation where and again I'm probably a bit biased about it, but the situation where people are working in different areas and they have to kind of violently force their work together in a, in a bit of an artificial way what you're saying there rings much truer with my own experience which is that you know I'm someone who loves reading um, you know scientific and technology studies uh, theory and like sociology of scientific knowledge kind of stuff um, you know I, I read widely in philosophy and but I'm still a musicologist so like there is a kind of an informal interdisciplinarity if you want to call it that I suppose driving my Absolutely, work yeah. so therefore yeah so therefore if 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 that kind of an approach was taken whereby there was a kind of a, a kind of a, a collaboration and a reaching across boundaries but then the actual outputs if you like or the, the kind of projects which were undertaken formally were, were still kind of pushed into the, the conduit of the, the specialisms, then then I can see that possibly working. And, and actually, you know, maybe it's just a failure of my imagination to see how things could be blended, simply because I haven't seen them being blended in a kind of a successful way so far. I can, I'm thinking of certain examples where it's, it's worked up to a point, but and this article is a good example of some of a case where there is a lot of kind of very recognizable and um, laudable ambition and there's a lot of I think she's she's a really powerful theorist and writer and a, a clear thinker as well so there's a lot going for this article and it, it doesn't at all fail on its own terms but I do feel like there's a there's a kind of a fundamental contradiction which it, it has to speak to and it doesn't quite do enough in speaking to that but but like I said I, I can see how it might just be a failure of my imagination to think about how these things could be navigated in the real world. I mean, from what it sounds like, it seems like you've thought about this a bit more than I have and, and I have more to say on it. So I'm, I'm grateful for what you've said, actually, because it's, it's opened my eyes a little bit about this sort of thing. I'm not sure. I mean, the, this part, the partitioning you mentioned, or you, you mentioned that the, the different focuses seem to, you know, separated within the article. And that is true. They're kind of partitioned into different sections without them being joined um, but with regard to just thinking that that the topic of interdisciplinarity more generally I've gotten involved with an institute an independent institute called the international what is it the international interdisciplinary institute or triple I so that's why I've been thinking about it a lot recently I've been meeting up with other scholars there was a workshop in in Stockholm where we got a lot of people together and we've been trying to talk about 
how to do interdisciplinary research, looking at you know potential collaborations and that type of thing. But I think there is a lot to be said for having these informal, independent kind of para-academic institutes, because I think maybe it's difficult to bring that into larger university structures. But if people who are already working within the university structure had the option of also taking part in these smaller institutions, which would be independently funded, that might be a way of trying out some of these ideas. Interesting, interesting. And now we're going to move to research in the rounds, our roundup of recently published research and conferences in the area of musicology. What do you have? I just wanted to point out a conference that's happening in London at Senate House on the 8th of June, which is called Surrealism and Music in France, 1924 to 1952, Interdisciplinary and International Contexts. So it kind of ties into what we were just saying there. I'll read the blurb for it. It's, Paris was the principal centre of surrealist activity and the focus of connections between surrealist literature, ethnology, sociology, visual arts and music. The links between surrealism and the emerging disciplines of ethnology and ethnomusicology redefined the concept of exoticism in France and were the subject of a good deal of polemical debate. However, connections between surrealism and music have been little explored, although it is clear the movement had a decisive influence on major French composers such as Pierre Boulez, Olivier Messiaen and André Jolivet. This conference initiates a transdisciplinary and international dialogue and will situate music at the heart of these debates. So that's taking place at Senate House in London on the 8th of June 2018 and the programme looks great. There's also going to be a concert at the end of the day which looks like it's got a very interesting programme. Excellent. I just wanted to draw attention to some pieces recently published in Upper Quarterly which is the journal from which the Eidsheim article came. It's not a journal that I actually have given enough attention to, clearly, looking at the latest article list. Uh, there is a piece on vocal philologies written on skin and the troubadours. So that's all about George Benjamin's very interesting opera from a few years ago, written on skin. There is an article called How Many Voices Can She Have? Destabilizing Desire and Identification in American Lulu. That is an article about Olga Neuwirth's kind of updating and kind of version of Berg's Lulu, which is a very interesting piece in itself. So I'm going to have a look at that. There is also an article on Fausto Romatelli, who I know is a favorite of mine and of Liam's, I yes. think, as well. Uh, it's called The Submerged Subject of Video Opera, Fausto Romatelli's An Index of Metals, An Index of Metals being uh, an amazing piece from a couple of decades ago. So I'm going to have a look at that, too. So I clearly need to be reading Upper Quarterly more regularly. I don't know about you, but I haven't I haven't looked at it that much no, myself. No, so yeah, it's an intriguing list of, of articles. So there we have it. That's it for talking musicology this month. We are well, this episode, let's say. Thanks very much for listening and talk to you soon. Bye.